my resolution for this year is to increase my Texas IQ by a good 20 to 25 points. How would you do that, Mike? I would listen to Come and Take It, a podcast about Texas by Texans. Happy New Year, y'all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, you know, he wasn't a good lawyer. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a martyr of the Alamo and a hero of the Texas Revolution. His last words have become part of the Texas psyche and made him a legend. The words, victory or death, will live forever in the hearts and minds of Texans, as well as the man who wrote them. Today we're talking about William Barrett Travis. But first, what's your favorite Texas stadium? Okay, well, I'm going to go with the biggest and the best. AT&T Stadium, home of the Dallas Cowboys. The biggest is not necessarily the best. <laughs> I'm going to go with the San Antonio Classic of Hemisphere Arena, home to the Hemisphere Pavilion. Okay. From the world. It's, it's like, like home of the... San Antonio. It's first. like the world's. It's like the world's fair in 1968 That's in San true. Antonio. Yeah. Well, you're both wrong. Astrodome. Enough said. No, you're right. Astrodome. It is it's the, the eighth wonder of the world. It's the Astrodome. It's always going to be the Astrodome, and it will forever yeah, stand. I'll go with that too. Among the defenders of the Alamo, the frontiersman and former congressman Davy Crockett and the legendary knife fighter Jim Bowie were the most famous going into the battle. William Travis, however gained his fame through his actions within the walls of the Alamo and in his role as commander of the Texas forces. In fact, Travis was more instrumental in the doomed display of defiance than either of the two icons. Bowie spent the last days of the siege unable to leave his sickbed, and Crockett preferred to serve as a simple private. It fell to Travis to lead the brave men inside the fort when the forces of Mexican dictator Santa Ana attacked. William Barrett Travis came from a long line of nobility and soldiers. His ancestry can be traced all the way back to 1066 and the Norman invasion of England. One of his ancestors, Travers, was a noble under William the Conqueror. Over the years, the name Travers slowly became Travis. Although descended from minor nobility, the Travis family was poverty-stricken by the time it came to America. Like so many immigrants, William Barrett Travis's grandfather, Berwick, came to make a better life for himself. He arrived in colonial America at the age of 12 as an indentured servant. Berwick Travis remained in servitude for 10 years before paying off his debt and traveling to South Carolina. There he was given a grant of over 100 acres in Saluda County. Berwick married Anne Smallwood, and the couple had seven children, including their firstborn son, Mark. Mark went on to marry Jemima Stallworth in 1808, and she gave birth to their first son, William Barrett, on August 1, 1809. William spent his early years in the Edgefield district of Saluda County, and one of his childhood companions was James Butler Bonham. Bonham later stood beside Travis at the Alamo, though it's hard to say for sure how close their relationship had been in the intervening years. In 1817, William's dynamic uncle Alexander moved to the newly developed territory of Alabama. Though William's father Mark was the older brother, Alexander was more outgoing and considered by most to be the patriarch of the family. Alexander urged Mark to bring his family to Alabama. When William was nine, Mark agreed, drawn by the promise of cheap land. The Travis family settled in the new town of Sparta in southern Alabama, and Mark Travis purchased the first certificate for land given out by the town. 
The Travises were instrumental in the founding of Sparta and nearby Evergreen. William grew up on his father's farm, and his uncle, Alexander, a preacher, had a great deal of influence on the young man. Alexander organized several Baptist churches in the town and preached throughout Alabama. He founded the Sparta Academy and served as superintendent. Here, William received his formal education, learning Greek, Latin, history, and mathematics. After a few years, he moved on to Claiborne, Alabama, and studied at the academy of Professor William H. McCurdy. Travis completed his education there at age 18 and became an assistant teacher in Monroe County. He held the position for less than a year, but that was long enough for him to meet a student named Rosanna Cato. The two shared an immediate attraction and married on October 26, 1828. The first son, Charlie, was born a year later. Being a teacher was not to William's liking, but neither was farming. He moved back to Claiborne and studied law under James Dellett, a local lawyer. Travis eventually became a partner, and for a short time they had a shared office in Gosport. Travis also wanted to join the higher ranks of Claiborne society. He joined the local Masonic Lodge and served as a junior officer in the area's Alabama Militia Unit. He also started a newspaper named the Claiborne Herald, which he operated alone. Like many other local papers of the time, the Herald published stories on national subjects, such as congressional activity, or on international subjects like adventures in the world, and sometimes more local notices and advertisements. It provided a modest income, but was not enough to support himself and the family. The financial stress led to carelessness, which led to errors like advertisements being printed upside down or improper typesetting, and expired advertisements that ran long after they weren't paid for. Although Travis passed the bar exam on February 27, 1829, and could officially practice law, his financial problems continued to grow. He borrowed $90 to help pay for the Herald, then another $55 to open his own law office. Neither his practice nor his paper brought in enough money to pay these debts and his household expenses. To further augment his income, Travis took in three students as boarders. This might actually have helped, but he also purchased two slaves to help his wife with the additional workload involved in taking on the boarders. This drove him even further into debt. The Herald continued to be more of a burden than a benefit over the rest of that year. Though it was supposed to be published weekly, only six issues went out in the fall. It went from being a full paper to only a two-sided sheet, but this didn't help. No one ever answered as many requests for assistance, and by the end of the year, the Herald went completely out of print. His law business didn't do much better. He had six cases, taking in less than $4 in fees. Considering his meager income, it's little surprise that Travis was forced to take on more debt to make ends meet. By the spring of 1831, his debt was up to $834. This is over $22,000 in today's money. His creditors, including his former mentor, James Dellett, had little choice but to sue Travis to try to force him to repay these debts. Desperate to avoid defaulting, Travis tried several legal angles, including a plea that the case be dismissed on the grounds of infancy. At the time, in many parts of Alabama, he was still considered an infant at only 22 years old. To counter this argument, Dillett forced Travis to stand, yelling at the courtroom, Gentlemen, I make proofest of this infant. The derision of the court humiliated Travis. None of his attempts to escape his debt worked, and a warrant was issued for his arrest on March 31st. 1831. Man, the law back then was weird. <laughs> Crazy laws of Alabama. Right, the law was that you didn't reach maturity until 25. <laughs> In certain parts, certain counties. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, to argue that you're an infant at the age of 22. That's, <laughs> yeah. 
there there is some common sense involved in interpreting the law. With a wife and child and a law practice. Yeah. <laughs> like many young men in the South, Travis had heard stories about Texas. The Mexican government was still welcoming immigrants from the United States at that time, and every story was filled with tales of huge tracts of land ripe for settlement and speculation. It was just the sort of place needing plenty of lawyers to deal with the influx of immigrants and land deals. But given the choice of debtor's prison or escape, it was clear to William that Texas was his best option. He promised Rosanna, who was pregnant with the second child at the time, that he would make enough money to pay back their debts and either return to her in Alabama or send for her and their children to join him in Texas. Now, there's evidence that the relationship between William and his wife was not exactly rosy at this point. There's a persistent story suggesting that Travis suspected Rosanna of infidelity and that her unborn child at the time was not his. The rumors further suggest that he may have killed a man because of the child's questionable paternity, although very little real evidence exists for this. It's all speculation. Travis arrived in Texas at San Felipe de Austin in May 1831 and purchased land from Stephen F. Austin himself. Because of the law of April 6, 1830, which halted Anglo immigration to Texas, Travis's immigration was actually illegal. Given his financial circumstances, where he came up with the money to make this purchase is unknown. As further evidence of the potential marital problems he was experiencing with Rosanna, he listed himself in the records as single. Travis did not remain idle, and he immediately turned his energy towards the political situation. He was appointed consul from the United States by Austin, representing American interests in the Anglo colonies. He also set up a law practice in Anahuac, which is inland from Galveston, and helped start a militia with the purpose of opposing Mexican rule. One of his biggest opponents in these actions was Colonel John Davis Bradburn, a Kentuckian in the service of Mexico. Bradburn was known as a man who had a heavy hand when it came to enforcing the new anti-immigration law. Bradburn's enforcement of the law was sometimes more strict than legal, and he allegedly used material and slaves belonging to settlers to build his own camp. Travis became an important figure in what would come to be known as the Anahuac Disturbances and was imprisoned for his involvement. All this after having been in Texas for less than a year. The principal dispute at Anahuac began in 1832. It started when William M. Logan of Louisiana hired Travis to secure the return of runaway slaves that were being harbored by Bradburn. Slavery was illegal in Mexico and its territories, so runaways were often safe there. They could be returned to their American owners with proper proof, but this was not always easy to produce. Logan didn't have the necessary documents with him, and he returned to Louisiana for proof of ownership. He first threatened, though, that he would return with help. It's difficult to know how serious this threat was, but Travis managed to use it to frighten Bradburn. He passed a note to one of the colonel's sentries indicating that Logan had followed through with his threat and returned with a large force. Bradburn mustered his entire garrison to search for Logan. He was, of course, nowhere to be found. Somehow determining that it was Travis who perpetrated the prank, Bradburn sent soldiers to his law office and arrested both Travis and his partner, a man named Patrick C. Jack. The two lawyers were imprisoned first in the guardhouse and then were transferred to two brick kilns. Word of the arrest and rather extreme punishment spread quickly, and a group assembled to demand they be released. This group drafted the Turtle Bayou Resolutions, which also pledged their loyalty to the state's rights constitution of 1824, rather than the centralist regime currently in power under Anastasio Bustamante. John Austin, no relation to Stephen F., traveled to Velasco to get a cannon and force Bradburn to comply to their demands when he did not immediately give in. On the Mexican side, the commander of the forces in Nacogdoches hurried to Anahuac to back up Bradburn. 
Even with the additional troops, Bradburn quickly realized that the Mexican forces were outnumbered and had Travis and Jack released to the local civil authorities. These authorities wasted little time in releasing them altogether. This incident resulted in further armed fights against Bustamante's supporters at Velasco and Nacogdoches and produced the conventions of 1832 and 1833, which petitioned for repeal of the law of April 6, 1830, and for Texas to become its own Mexican state. Travis moved his practice to San Felipe after the clashes at Anahuac. In 1834, he was elected secretary to the city council. He met a woman named Rebecca Cummings and started courting her, planning to eventually marry her once he had obtained a divorce. Rosanna had just begun divorce proceedings in 1834, charging William with desertion. The divorce went through in 1835, and she remarried early in 1836. Seems a little short, like maybe she had another colonel lined up back home. (laughs) In the meantime, she allowed their son Charles to move to Texas, where he lived near his father, but with the family of David Ayers. It seems unlikely that Travis knew he was divorced as he was fully embroiled in the Texas Revolution by the time it was finalized. Whether he knew that he was single again or not, he made no attempt to marry Rebecca Cummings. While Travis's personal life was in chaos, political life in Texas was growing just as chaotic. By the summer 1835, Santa Ana asserted his centralist authority and reestablished a military garrison in Anahuac under the command of Captain Antonio Tenorio. In answer to this move, a revolutionary group led by James B. Miller, authorized Travis to expel Tenorio. In late June, he led 25 men on an amphibious assault through Harrisburg and Galveston Bay, and he captured the Mexican soldiers stationed at Anahuac without firing a shot. This action distressed the Peace Party of Texas, who favored negotiation with Mexico. For some time, Travis was considered a troublemaker by many Texians. Of course, Mexican authorities considered him an outlaw. General Martin Perfecto de Caz, commander of the Mexican military in the north, moved his command to San Antonio and demanded the surrender of Travis and his fellow partisans for military trial. Caz also demanded the surrender of what would become the famous Gonzales Come and Take It cannon in October 1835, sparking open revolt. Travis was one of the many Texans who hurried to the conflict when he heard about it, but, like most everyone else, he arrived too late to participate in the action. He remained with the militia, and was with it when they went to lay siege to Bayar. Travis served as a scout in a cavalry unit commanded by Randall Jones, and later led his own unit. He left San Antonio before the final assault in early December to return to San Felipe. Travis was an advisor to the Texas military officials and helped organize the cavalry, though when they offered him a commission as a major in the artillery division, he turned them down. This career choice proved to be a good one, as he was later made a lieutenant colonel of the Legion of Cavalry. Though still in his early 20s, he was also made chief recruiting officer for the new regular Texas Army, in preparation for the conflict that was coming. Governor Henry Smith ordered Travis to raise a company of professional soldiers to reinforce the Texans under James C. Neal at the Alamo in San Antonio, which was a location they already viewed as strategically valuable. Travis was only able to raise 29 men rather than the full 100 requested and was understandably embarrassed. He was also reluctant to obey the command to travel to the Alamo with such a small force. He wrote Smith saying, I am willing, nay, anxious to go to the defense of Bayar, but, sir, I am unwilling to risk my reputation by going off into the enemy's country with such little means, so few men, and with them so badly equipped. Nevertheless, he obeyed the command and arrived at the Alamo on February 3, 1836, joining the volunteers and regulars serving under Colonel Neal and the recently arrived Colonel Jim Bowie. 
Although much has been made about the rivalry between Travis and Bowie, the two actually knew each other before the war and were acquaintances, if not friends. Travis had represented Bowie on some land deals in 1832, and both were regular correspondents as part of the war party in the run-up to the Revolution. Nevertheless, the question of command was an issue when Neil left on February 11th to tend to a family illness. Bowie claimed a higher rank, but was part of the militia, and Travis held a rank just below Bowie's, but was in the regular army. Rather than arguing about it, the pair left the decision up to a vote from the men that they commanded. Now, whether because there were more volunteers in the Alamo, or because they respected Bowie's age and reputation, or they just didn't like Travis, they chose Bowie rather than Travis. Unsurprisingly, Travis was infuriated by these results, a feeling made all the worse by Bowie's reaction. Bowie allowed his men to celebrate by getting drunk and raising cane throughout San Antonio. Mm, raising cane. As depicted famously in the Alamo movie, John Wayne, John Wayne Alamo movie. There's a lot of random fiddling in that movie. <laughs> yes. That I take like, yeah. oh, that's I say, be a he, metaphor for Says he helped out Bowie with some land deals. I'm sure those were all on the up and up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he wasn't a good lawyer. Yeah. As a sign of their respect for each other, or simply because they both realized the importance of a unified force in the face of the challenges that were coming, the pair came to a compromise two days later. Bowie commanded the volunteers, and Travis commanded the regulars. Both offered to step aside and give command to the newly arrived living legend Davy Crockett, as he was older than both of them and had served as an honorary general in the Tennessee militia. Crockett deferred and asked for a simple private's rank. The entire issue became pointless not long after they reached this compromise, as Bowie's health began to fail and he was confined to his bed by the time fighting broke out. It didn't take Travis long to realize how vulnerable the Alamo was. He scrambled to reinforce the structure for the upcoming siege. With engineer Green B. Jameson, he strengthened the walls, constructed palisades to fill the gaps, mounted cannons, and gathered provisions. He also wrote letters requesting reinforcements, knowing that the numbers he had in the Alamo did not have the ability to truly protect the structure. Only 35 men came from Gonzales, along with a few others who just straggled in. This raised the total number of Texas troops within the Alamo to just under 200 when Santa Ana's army arrived on February 21, 1836, laying siege to the mission. Though his letters were not effective in bringing troops, they are likely what Travis is most known for doing, and one of the most famous documents in Texas history sprang from his pen. On February 24, 1836, during the siege, Travis wrote a letter addressed, quote, to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. It reads as follows. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death, William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel Commandant, P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and got into the wall 20 or 30 head of beeves. Travis. 
This letter was entrusted to John William Smith for delivery and was placed in an envelope labeled Victory or Death. Though his most striking and inspiring, this was not the last message that would leave the Alamo. In fact, Tejano Hero of the Revolution, Juan Seguin, would later brave the Mexican lines to deliver another letter. None of these cries for help were answered in any significant way. The Texian forces were disorganized and focused on other areas, and many felt the Alamo was an untenable and unimportant location. The victory or death letter, while unable to bring aid to the garrison at the Alamo, nonetheless did much to motivate the Texian army and helped to rally support in America for the cause of Texas independence. The bravery and defiance of his writing cemented Travis's status as a hero of the Texas Revolution. Though the Mexican army bombarded the Texan forces for 13 days, they inflicted few casualties. It took until the morning of March 6, 1836, for Santa Ana to get his forces organized to his satisfaction. He ordered a pre-dawn assault, knowing the defenders would be least able to protect themselves at that time. As expected, the approximately 180 men within the mission were no match for the thousands of Mexican troops. Travis fought bravely alongside the men under his command and was said to be among the first men to rush to the walls and fight. He died early in the battle from a single bullet to the head, leaving the defenders leaderless as Bowie was still confined to his bed. After the massacre, the remains of the Alamo's defenders, including William Barrett Travis, were burned. They would later be properly buried by once again. It just kind of ends. I must say that Colonel William Travis, as portrayed by Alec Baldwin, is quite handsome. He is. Anything portrayed well, by Alec Baldwin is quite handsome. To be fair, as portrayed by Lawrence Harvey, he was quite handsome as well. Oh. Yeah. Welcome to the Alec Baldwin and Lawrence Harvey podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Travis is another one of those kind of giants of Texas history, but the interesting thing about him, so you know, we talked about Bowie is, and, and the other stories is Texas is a place to come to reinvent yourself. And really, that's what, that's what Travis really had to do is he really did have to come and reinvent himself. But I think the difference between Bowie and Travis and Clark and Travis, as we said in the beginning is they were already famous when they came to yeah. that battle. And it's, it's through this battle. If, if he hadn't been at the Alamo, if he'd just been a soldier who fought right through the, through the Texas revolution, we, all the way to San Jacinto, we probably wouldn't be talking yeah, about him. We right probably now. would be, we, you know, he might be a minor footnote in some of the lead up to the revolution, but, for the Anahuac disturbances, but for the most part, he doesn't seem like the man of destiny that Houston and that Travis, I mean, that Houston and Bowie and Crockett, and those men did. Yeah, well, but, but both, I mean, what the things that happened at the Alamo, both the letter that he wrote, his victory or death letter, and the apocryphal line in the sand right. incident. Which, which we don't talk about, but yeah. Right, I mean, it's not like a verified thing, but it's part of the the culture is part of the legend. Right. I mean, the, it's all, definitely the myth. All, all of that shows that Travis is someone that was, his legacy was made by the events at the Alamo. Right. right. He's, he's permanently enshrined in our legend through that, those 13 days, really. Well, you, you said it interesting. It's a turn of phrase, man of destiny. Right. And I think we look at these guys who were the cornerstone of, of what took place at the Alamo. And we, we think of them as iconic, but all great moments of of history are kind of come down to just kind of being prepared for that single moment Mm -hmm. and rising to the occasion. And I think that that's, you know, this was in a way, you know, his life was cut short, but for the historical means and what he accomplished, it was the right place at the Mm -hmm. right time. He's 27. He's 27 years old. But the interesting thing is he doesn't seem like the man of destiny, but it's 
it seems like he felt himself a man of destiny. He felt like this was in his cards or in his stars. Bowie had his fame going in, and he and for those thirteen days, he spent it in a bed. Yeah. Crockett, the kind of the lore of him is that he really didn't actually mean to be there. He didn't really certainly set out to. I'm going to go find a spot that's going to get completely surrounded, and I'm going to die. Um, he came and he kind of got wrapped up in this these events. Travis sought these things out, this glory out. Well, he had a... You say, well, it's... Okay, so it's two sides of the coin. You say glory seeker. But he was very passionate. Yes, yes. And his passion comes through in this story. I mean, the the levels of... You know, he's, he's a dissident, and he's causing trouble for all kinds of people mm-hmm. all throughout the Texas Revolution. And then when he finally is in this authority position then, you know, he rises to the occasion. So it's... Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, it, he, he seems to me as the type of person that's passionate about whatever it is that he got involved in. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the the newspaper that he kept going long after it really yeah. should have. And he kept, you know, getting more and more in debt, trying to keep things going. He was also a lawyer. He practiced law. Um, but he, he seemed to stick with things until there was absolutely nothing else he could do. I mean, he tried to convince people that he was legally an infant yeah, and therefore didn't have to pay back his debts. Well, so. I would I will say this: if you're if you run an obscure pet blog, or maybe <laughs> you like um, you know have have kind of an oddball blog, you know, keep it up, <laughs> keep it up because that's what patriots do, right? And I think you know when we get into the portrayals of Travis in the different movies, he's he's generally uh, the the Alec Baldwin portrayal is pretty pretty even. He's he's just sort of the the, the generic general hero. Uh, Lawrence Harvey's played as a kind of an arrogant uh, aristocrat who you know clashes with everybody because he wants to wear his uniform and and be like the the super guy. And then the most recent the the John Lee Hancock movie, Patrick Wilson plays him as kind of a bumbling dandy uh, who's kind of mocked for they call him buck and you know he's mocked for leaving his wife and mocked for being a debtor and and, but he kind of he he again he sort of rises to the occasion as well and i and i think from the accounts i've read then again that was one of the the portrayal of travis i think is one of the things that i i find odd in that movie because Mm -hmm. I, i identify more with the the person from you know the john wayne alamo i identify more with with the other incarnations of who Travis is, particularly when you sort of read the history and then you go back to this and look, it's like, well, bumbling is not the word I would use for the guy. Right. Uh, certainly not in a military situation. And he had the respect of, of a certain number of people, you know, they like to create that dramatic tension in movies between, right. you know, well, Travis is a rule follower and Bowie just kind of, fl- you know, he's flies by the seat of his pants and does his own thing, but it really isn't, is reflective of what really happened. Right. And when I was researching the Jim Bowie episodes, I wish I'd never seen the, the letters between the two of them. And like, they're respectful and they're talking, they're on the same side of like, Texas needs to be, we need to be resisting Santa Ana. Texas needs to be asserting itself. They were both part of the war party. They were corresponding with each other. And I'd always heard the myth and, and taken the myth of Travis and Bowie didn't like each other. And, never really knew that they had prior relationships. So I think in kind of uh, the Alec Baldwin movie from the eighties, they kind of touch on that a little bit that not, not that part, but that Travis had a great respect for Bowie. Yeah. 13 days to glory. 13 days to glory. Well, I I don't care who you are. You have great respect for Bowie. (laughs) Yes. Especially once you know, just a a fraction of that man's story. Like, right. 
But I, I didn't know that there was that personal connection between them prior to February of 1836 is the, is the point. Well, as this question in the Bowie episode, and I'll ask it here, if by some, I mean, he clearly was going down with the ship here, but if by some miracle he ended up being outside the Alamo or somehow surviving it and, and lasting to the end of the revolution, you know, what do you think Travis would have been in Texas? So I think that's an interesting question. I kind of touched on that before. I think it, it's a question of, does he get into the Alamo in the first place? If he never went to the Alamo, maybe like a minor military leader, possibly something along those lines, or, or he could have risen to the occasion during the runaway scrape or during the, the, the battle of San Jacinto. He might've been the person leading the cavalry instead of Mirabeau Lamar. Yeah. Didn't, and been a hero. So, say, so Travis initially missed the fighting at Gonzalez. Yes. And did, didn't he also miss another yeah, battle? He missed the battle, the battle of Bayer, the attack on Bayer. Yeah. So he, San Antonio. he, he narrowly missed two, two battles, fairly right. significant battles. Um, I think it, Leads me to believe that if he had missed the battle at the Alamo, he would have ended up at something else. It's after probably that. at San Jacinto. Yeah, you know, he he definitely seemed to be on course. Well, he to was be, a, to be in yeah. the middle of things. He was in the regular army, so he would have been with Houston yeah. essentially. Here's the question about Travis: Did the Alamo matter? Because he's always portrayed in movies and stuff as being the one that you know the Alamo must stand. We must stay. Would tear up those letters saying "Leave the Alamo now." But what is really his involvement in them staying in the Alamo and what would have been the cost if they hadn't had had left? Well, I don't think, I think the Alamo mattered. I mean, it's easy to look back in hindsight at history, but I think without what happened at the Alamo, then maybe it would have taken longer for, um, you know, for the revolution to be successful if it was successful, because it was Goliad combined with Alamo, the Alamo, what happened Mm -hmm. at the Alamo that really fired up. Right you know, the people living in Texas and gave them a rallying cry for the rest of the fight. Without what happened at the Alamo, I'm not sure that things would have played out the same way. I mean, I think that Texas eventually would have won its independence, but it may not have happened as quickly, and it may not have even been that particular effort. It may have been many years later. I think the Alamo matters, obviously, in the same way that Thermophila matters to ancient history. It's it is a rallying point, and it is. It was a stalling point. It was. It was two weeks where Santa Ana was stalled out in San Antonio, facing two hundred men with his entire army. Um, would there have been another battle somewhere else similar to that? It, maybe Santa Ana would have focused on Goliad instead. If San If San Antonio was abandoned, then and Goliad was a little better able to defend itself with nearly five hundred men under Fannin, but Fannin may not have stayed. So. I think the, the 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 Alamo matters in retrospect. I think that there's a there's a justifiable argument to the to the statement that it's indefensible with the number of men they had, and it wasn't totally strategic. But it was there's also a justified argument in putting a stand in those men at the Alamo. We've said this before. They knew that they were there in a doomed mission. Yeah, and they knew what the cost of what them being there was, and they knew what they hoped to gain. So. Yes, I think it matters in the fact that it, it it is a rallying point for Texans, and it was that's why it's so important to the legend of Texas and of Colonel Travis. Yeah, and of Travis and of Bowie and everybody, but to the psyche of Texas as well. Of you know, it is it is hallowed ground in the, in the most the most uh, concrete sense. 
That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend James Abedroth for helping us research and write today's episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press. Tell your friends about this show, and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.